On this week's episode of the Bet the Process podcast, Jeff and I return from our respective vacations. We discuss a prominent offshore sports book and a mistake line they hung, and the fact that just about every U.S. sports book copied that mistake. And then we welcome on Seth Partnow, who is the former director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks and a current athletic NBA analyst who explains to me how basketball works and talks about basketball in the bubble, the playoffs, uh, his observations, and it's a very interesting and insightful discussion. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, bet. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not the typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a out with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to the latest episode of the Bet the Process podcast. Um, we've taken a little summer hiatus because Rufus and I were both on vacation. Rufus, you were in Maine. I was in Maine. Uh, I was in Newport Beach. Newport Beach is a very interesting place right now. Um, somehow, uh, COVID skipped Newport Beach. Um, it like went around all of Orange County, but skipped Newport Beach. I got down there. I walked into a local drugstore and, um, I was the only one in the drugstore wearing a mask. The uh, customers, the owner, none of them were wearing masks. And then I walked around like the, the beach and the beach was crowded and which I don't care about personally because I think outdoors is like pretty safe, but it was just definitely an interesting place. I went to a restaurant that was outdoors, but was very, very crowded and like tables right next to each other. So it was, it was definitely an interesting experience. Um, it definitely felt different than the Bay Area where I live. Uh, what have you been up to, Rufus? Have you been doing golf still? Um, have you been prepping for NFL? You know, I, I took a working vacation uh, per usual for me. I've been I've been doing golf. Golf has basically been my big focus for the last ha, few months. No, I know that you've been getting a, a fair amount of volume down in golf. Um, I assume that has something to do with like the different like new markets that you can play in right there's a bunch of places that you can get money down in now have you noticed any difference in the market um because it 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 does seem like someone asked me actually the other day when i was playing golf with him he said hey have you guys seen uh an increase in in uh, nba betting because there was all this sort of pent-up demand and i was like god i don't even know how i would figure that out you know like there's just so many markets both um, offshore and onshore that it just seems really hard to figure out something like that but you know I would assume that as he was saying this I was like well I I think golf betting is up for sure because you know it came back first and it was the only thing to bet Um, have you noticed any change in, in the way the market is or I mean obviously you control a bunch of the the worldwide market so um Maybe, maybe it doesn't even matter to you because the market seems to react to you broadly. No, it does seem like there's more players in the market, more sharper players out there. Um, I've talked with people that are betting golf pretty seriously, and I don't think were necessarily before. Um, right. Just because it was the only thing out there, people could put a lot of time into it. There was, there was warning that the season was going to start. And so 
I think a lot of people kind of got into it as a result of that. And I think it's also been sharper on the DFS side too. The market, I think the markets are generally more efficient than they've been in the past, which. But that, that was the way that golf was, was sort of was trending to some yeah. degree, but maybe COVID kind of accelerated it to a point to, to like a, just a, you know, an exponential point of, of acceleration or something. I mean, the thing is there, I, I still do have differences of opinion for the market and it's. But don't you think that most of those differences come from you having some data that the rest of the market doesn't have at times? No, I don't think it's that. I think, I mean, I think that the data that I have. you think it's because you're wearing that weird shirt and hat combination? Well, the Pink, Lef- Pink Flamingo shirt is, is uh, hopefully going to provide some good luck today. We should screenshot. You should take a selfie of yourself and tweet this out when we do. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll do a screenshot action. of a, uh, there we go. There we go. Okay. So hopefully you, you got that clicky noise too. Combination. You really don't do it justice unless you turn your hat around and okay. they can see the full fine. I'll, your, your, your I'll full, I retired your, the hat that you were making fun of. Full, I just oh, you it. don't even have the same hat on anymore. I'll, I'll put the, I'll put the hat back on. Jeff, I got this hat when I was out in Sonoma wine tasting. Nice. Cause everyone so, knows that when you go wine tasting, what you need to do is buy a really ugly baseball hat. Um, are you, so you haven't really been doing any NFL prep work. Have you thought at all about how you're going to model home field in the NFL? You know, so well, no, I, d- I did do NFL prep work back in May when I was in New Jersey, mm-hmm. but I haven't done any since then. And I haven't, um, I, I have, you know, I've, I've thought about, well, we've talked about home field a little bit on this podcast. Um, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what home field advantage ends up being. Um, I don't know what this, this specific NFL Are situation is Are you saying what the, mar- how the market price is? Yeah, it? It, that, right. that's going to be interesting to me. Um, just, do you think you're just going to, do you think you're going to maybe diminish all your home field effects and just kind of let the market speak for itself? Probably because I honestly don't think there's going to be a huge edge to it. I mean, it's home field is, I, I think the difference between what I'd price home field and what the market would, will be close enough that, you know, if it's, if it's a half a point difference, um, I'm not just going to be betting on something just because of that. Do you, I mean, we're about to have Seth part now on who um, was, was working with the Bucks for a while and is, you know, obviously a sharp NBA um, sort of analyst. Do you think that there's anything to be learned from what's happening in the NBA with home field? Or do you think it's just such a different, I guess it's just such a different thing because of the bubble and no travel and everything. So no, I, I think there is a lot to be learned, but I think there's also a lot to overreact to. And obviously like we've talked to Cheetah about, um, about what's transpired in the NBA with, like shooting percentages being up with no fans and the fact that there actually has been a home field advantage I, I just think despite, that, don't you despite think the fact like I think it, I think it's sample size kind of yeah I mean I can understand with the free throw shooting and the shooting the fact that there has been psychological research that shooters or people shoot better with that when there's no noise or uh, no sort of verbal feedback but um, but I, I it's hard to convince me that home teams are doing better because there's noise the music piped in is advantageous for the home team that seems the like article, a the, the tan article was a little i i was i tried to reread that today and it, it just kind of hurt my head but so it was i, I, I it. thought it was a good article actually i thought it was very interesting it brought up it, it brought it was up very it was very anecdotal it, right which drives me crazy about and i know maybe that's all it could be but like and maybe it's provocative in its thinking but but jeff it gave me enough information to kind of try to draw my own conclusion 
it didn't, you know, I, I wasn't, sure. you know, it, it didn't say, oh, it, this is happening for certain because of this. It basically gave the data and said, you know, there might be an effect, there might not. And, and I felt for me, it gave me enough information where I thought I had an idea of that personally, I thought it was, had to be mostly just noise. Um, like it just, it just seems too far-fetched. That there's- switching gears, switching gears a sec. Wanted to talk a little bit about this Bet Chris um, Toronto Raptors situation that everyone's sort of making a big deal about. Um, for those of you guys that don't know, Chris is an offshore book that we've talked about a bunch. Um, well known as sort of one of the best offshore books, if not the best. Well, and their reputation was they originate the law. But you know something? They are getting very, very wonky in some of their markets. Their second half markets in the NBA. They are doing their, what's that? In what way? Uh, they're delaying you. They're moving things. They're like literally just not hanging lines in certain situations. They're being very sketchy in ways that I never thought they would. Um, and they're, they're protecting themselves. What's that? I said, that's not good. You think, do you think any of that has to do with the fact that with legalized sports betting in the U S they're losing uh, a segment of their recreational betters? I, I really don't know, and I don't know if this is something that's just, you know, for a subset of their players versus, like, all of their players or what, what exactly is going on. But there is some very – like, if I listed out all the sort of wonky things that they're doing right now, you would be very surprised. And it's, it's mostly on, in, in areas where there is clearly some sharp play going on um, because I know that, you know, I kind of – I kind of hear scuttlebutt and then look at the markets and the markets are reacting in very strange ways I, or the, or they're literally just not hanging lines on some of these things or they're not showing lines. Anyway, the um, Raptors, let's, uh, so, so the, the Raptors, Raptors so, they, so, the, so the Raptors second half line, um, in game two, I think they were down, they hung it like minus three. The real line should have been, I don't know, minus nine or something like that. And the, they were like the trailing by market, they were, it was like they were losing point by, favorite, losing by five point, no, three points. Yeah, was, I don't know. They were, they were, no, it was, I don't think they were losing by that much. Anyways, the point is that everyone copied them. All these other like legalized books copied them and it all had the wrong lines. Except um, one book, then, right? Yeah, I think except it was one like book. William Hill didn't or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean. And so, hey, you know, it, it's, it's been a big to do with everyone in the industry that we know that we consider, you know, on the sharper side that, cause they're like, Oh, this should show everyone how reputable offshore books are and that kind of thing. And, you know, it, it's, a, it, it's such an interesting agenda, right? Because, you know, we're, we're so far away from an offshore book. I feel like, like Chris, I mean, I guess bet 365 got licensed in New Jersey, um, and a lot of people. I, are I guess angry I just about don't know that. what the. What's up? I mean, a lot of people are upset about that. I mean, it there's doesn't an talk, argument it doesn't that make, it, th- it doesn't make sense. It's it. There's an yeah, argument it doesn't that, make like, sense. Yeah. So it just it's or it does make sense, right? And like all of these offshore books should be licensed. I guess I just don't understand the agenda right now, because we're so far from you know a world where we have really great you know books that take sharp action in the U.S. Um, you know, yes, I think most everyone knows that the offshore books are the sharpest books and like many people just copy these lines. And if you talk to like Matt and, and Ed, right, that's one of the primary reasons they want to create the company that they're creating, Beck Prism, right, is because mm-hmm. they know 
that there is a lot of opportunity to create sharper second half or sharper in-game lines because often the lines are copied from Chris and 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 they say that there's like one dude at Chris that's sitting sitting in his in his office like making all these lines and so if he's you know anyways um I mean do you have any comments on this or do you care about it or do you like no I I thought it's 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 illuminating I mean because you do have these recreate or these u.s sports books basically saying the offshore industry is evil like how dare you quote their lines um this and, and then at the same time they're so dependent on it and yeah and, i guess and there really is a there's a free rider problem i mean chris is basically doing the they're doing the price discovery they're basically doing the work and all these other books are picking back piggybacking on it and um i don't know what the answer is to that but i mean it's Okay, I mean, Chris, and that Chris lives, could just become a B two B and license out their lines or something, I guess. But, but there's no, not very much money in that, and and, no, there and that and that lens, I get it, I get it, I I I think that's a subtle nuance that I wasn't getting as I thought about how horrific this was. Um, yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting to think about, and from the B two B standpoint, is we know that there are a lot of companies that are out there trying to do the B2B play, right? Like this is a great Yeah, I think there's more money there. I mean, think well, about there's how a much great operators are having to spend on, on marketing and all that. Like, But there's I, not, you really think there's great money? Like, do, would you, right now, if you were able to buy into Simple Bet uh, as an investor at well, like no. a, let's say, I said, <laughs> the let's no. say but, but is it is it the valuation or is it just the general prospects of the company? How about if you were able to buy into Deck Prism? Like, I mean, De- I'd be more likely to buy into Deck Prism. Although, they would don't you have buy the, into Deck they, Prism? Because like it, they wanted you. At one point, you were thinking about working with those guys, and you well, I would, not to. you know, I, I would love, I, I would love to work with uh, Matt and Ed, just because they're they're. You would love to work with them, but on Deck Prism. I don't know. I mean, I I don't, I don't know. Like I, honestly, I don't even know specifically what their plans are for it. Um, right. what their aspiration. I mean. Well, but, I mean, I think we know what their aspirations bet. are to some degree, right? We we think they want to become the, the number one sort of like, you know, platform for like I mean, sports I th- books. I to, think it's going to gonna be hard to do that. Side. I think it's going to be hard office to do for sports books. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be hard to do that without actually raising a lot of money and, and kind of being, I think they're, they're trying to do it slowly and organically and, you know, they've self-financed and all that stuff. Uh, but you know, whereas Simple Bet went the opposite direction. They raised a bunch of money. They used the, you know, they said they were going to revolutionize everything with AI and machine learning. And, um, and but we're here two years later and they don't have a product yet. And there's still like some press release, an article written about how they're well, about they to have this Darren product. So, to retweet them. Yeah, exactly. So. I mean, I, I've, as far as I, like, from my understanding, and, and I don't know the inner workings of Simple Bet, but so far they've, you know, they, they haven't shown me anything and, and they've churned through a lot of money and they've changed directions multiple times. So, I mean, I think they're an example of how easy it is to raise money right now um, in the sports betting world just by using these big buzzwords and getting a bunch of Harvard data scientists, Harvard machine learning experts. So, um, I mean, they, they may prove me wrong. I don't know. I, I, as I said, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't mean to call anybody out here. I'm just saying that, that they haven't, uh, I mean, it, they haven't actually developed a product yet. So it's like, how do I judge their product? No, I mean, they, they have smart people that work there. There is a lot of people that work there. Um, 
you know, I, again, I'm like, right, this, I'm, not, I'm not saying they don't have smart people to work there. You look at no, the I, list of people involved and, and I mean, those re they have a lot of good looking resumes. Um, I think I, like you, am very skeptical. Well, maybe you're not skeptical of it because you're kind of saying the B2B model is like something that you're interested in. I'm pretty well, it's skeptical just a, of it's, it. it. It's, a, it's a much lower cost than... Well, you're just skeptical. It's more profitable you're, if you do it, well, in the short run, I guess. You Like all these words you're saying, I don't think they mean what you think they mean. Because no. like, it's, okay. I think what you're saying is that what you're saying, what you what you are afraid of is having to acquire customers because that's expensive, right? And to, to, to get customers on a consumer side, it's expensive. And that's the whole reason that like things like TAN exist, right? Because they can help these, these um, yep. affiliates books get customers effectively, right? And so ultimately that idea of, of media to sports books, even like what the Barstool with Penn National did it would have been interesting. It would be much, it would be, it will be interesting to see how that plays out over the next say 12 to 18 months once, you know, betting really returns. And, and I mean, I guess betting has returned. So uh, you haven't been doing any baseball, right? No, I haven't. But Jeff, I, I just want to say that I, I do think, I mean, I, I think the big issue is just that it's really impossible to compete on the operator side because with, with the amount of money that DraftKings and FanDuel and, and Penn National now, like, you know, have, um, have at their disposal um, and, and how much of a loss they're willing to take in the short run to try to corner the market, um, you know, let's, the let's small do, guy can't really compete. Anyway, let's do, we, have, let's, we, we, have Seth, we have Seth on the line here. All right, let's, let's have Seth that? join us. Let's okay. have Seth join us. I, I will admit him from the waiting room. I feel like a doctor. Here we go, guys. This is exciting. This is very exciting. Oh wow! Seth That's is, a beautiful background. What what city is that? Is that Vancouver? What city is that? No, you're that, on mute, Seth. It's classic Zoom error. Yeah, Milwaukee. I do, I Milwaukee. do that every time. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. It's Milwaukee. You're 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 live <laughs> on the Bet the Process podcast. Not, but it's not really live. It's recorded, so we can always go back and edit it. But but uh, <laughs> anyways, are you still in Milwaukee? Uh, just outside. Yeah, that is that is not the view from from my house. Um, really? That's a virtual background? That's the most amazing concept. <laughs> I am not, this is literally a real plant behind me. Everyone says it looks like it's growing out of my head. Um, what are, so, so tell us a little bit for those people who don't know who you are, which hopefully there's no one these days. Um, who are you and how did you get involved in basketball and, and how did you end up in Milwaukee? Oh, so starting um, first, la uh, first, I guess, uh, I'm currently an NBA analyst for the athletic, uh, prior to that, up until just over a year ago, I was director of basketball research, uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, you're the one that discovered Giannis, right? Like no one had heard of Giannis before and you discovered him, right? I, uh, that, uh, uh, false. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I joined the Bucks after he had been with the team for several years. So I can take, uh, but you, you're the one that taught him how to like bulldoze into like 15 people, knock them all down score. And no, not no, sadly, no, I, I cannot bank on that on, on my resume. So I, I was the essentially the head of analytics for the Bucks for about three years. Uh, prior to that, I was the editor of the Nylon Calculus. And uh, prior to that, I was just some dude on the internet. <laughs> so you're basically like Rufus's. Some dude on the internet. <laughs> um, so Nylon Calculus was one of the early sort of groundbreaking, um, you know, it was one of the first analytics, real, real, like look at analytics, right. In terms of, of the NBA, do you, 
how do you how do you think about your role and i don't mean this in like a self-serving way for yourself but like just everything that's happened in the nba i, I often think like that analytics is the, is what's made the nba so exciting in many ways because there is this sort of like almost like this petri dish of experimentation from an analytics standpoint and then we actually get to see it play out on the court and then so much of the analysis that happens right now is based on that analytics you know what i mean it's like the it's really the only sport i think I guess you see it in baseball too with, you know, shifts and lineup order and, and, you know, openers and things like that. Um, but, but basketball is obviously just more exciting than baseball. So, you know, what, what role do you think that the work that you did play in that? And then also what do you consider to be sort of the most interesting thing that, that you might've been sort of at the, at the forefront of that you're seeing kind of um, play out in the NBA? So um, I think I'm, I've sort of been uh, adjacent to what is really a technological change. I think the, the big move forward was for 13-14, uh, the 2013-14 season, was the introduction, introduction of, of player, tra- <coughs> excuse me, uh, player tracking data. You can't cough on podcasts these days because we all worry as soon as yeah. someone coughs, especially when Rufus is involved. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I'm uh, glad to see you're doing well, and 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 was was sorry to not get a chance to talk to you at Sloan, and afterwards was you're very happy afterwards. Yeah, huh? afterwards yeah. Was, was, was happy about <laughs> like, it. Um, uh, so, but the, the the tracking data kind of came online in thirteen fourteen, and that was just a sea change in the amount that you could really see uh, from a a basketball standpoint, not just a, a statistical standpoint. Before that. Uh, we were working with play-by-play data and, you know, people were doing more and more kind of fine-tuned algorithmic methods to try to determine who's good or not, but never really being able to approach why. And now with that, with that data, um, you know, you can look at every pick and roll, you can look at every isolation, you can look at, at, you know, shot expectancy models. Um, So all of those things have really allowed for just, just huge leaps forward in what we can say from a statistical standpoint about the game of basketball. And I think that is really what's driven a lot of this forward Um, sort of confirming or refuting a lot of kind of the uh, traditional wisdom about what you need to do to be successful on the basketball floor. Um, I've been a part of that, but I think the technology has just been the, the, the big driver there. How do you, how do you think about that? thread going forward, i.e., you know, in the work that our common friend Ted Knudsen does around, you know, better event specs and things like that, do you think that there's a lot of opportunity to, to move that forward beyond where it is right now from a, from, and I guess like what direction do you see that going for those that are, those that are smart? Um, yeah, I think we've gotten, even on the, the team side, I think we've gotten 5% out of the tracking data that, that is there. Um, just in terms of, of operationalizing it. I think the big area, I mean, it, it's all sports. What's the big thing everyone wants to figure out is defense. Um, I think that's the place where there's still just massive gains to be made in terms of, of better identifying what offensive actions are threats and how to respond to those. Um, I think the continuing three-point revolution has been almost teams have hacked the defensive heuristics of 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 kind of the league as a whole and those those heuristics haven't changed oh well the guy's driving to middle we have to help and then you know an easy kick and a three-pointer 
and as every as every team starts to play that way offensively, I don't think teams have adjusted enough to the kind to take away what they actually want, which is the three pointer as opposed to kind of the aimless drive, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, what's interesting too, I would think is that any analysis you do of this is going to be non-stationary because shooting is just getting better. Like you can't deny that like the fact that these guys practice more three point shots, that they're going to get better at it. Right. Like there are players that never would have shot threes in the past that now take thousands of threes a day, right. And and practice. And so that makes any analysis of what works from a defensive standpoint, non-stationary. So I think that that, that's what I would say is like a, a real a real problem with looking at historical data to do this kind of stuff. Absolutely. And I think that's that's sort of the competitive meta of the game has changed so much from even five or six years ago. You looked at those Miami Heat teams where they did a lot of kind of run and jump. Um, if the, the shot that comes out of, you know, the, okay, we beat your trap, we swing, swing is a baseline 18 footer. Okay, that's fine. If it's a corner three pointer, then we're dead. And so now kind of an entire strategy is almost non-viable just based on the fact that the fourth guy on the floor, like you're saying, the power forwards and centers are now shooting threes also. So there's not a guy you can almost live with shooting jumpers anymore because those beat you now. So this is a, actually like a really interesting question that Rufus and I deal with a lot in the, in the betting world is trying to model something out with incomplete data in a, in a situation where we know the data is going to be thin or non-stationary. How would you think about that from a standpoint of, you know, trying to understand really where the game is going or where the trends are going versus using historical for where it's been? Um, that's, that's a great question. And uh, I think a lot of people are working on the answer to that. And the short version is, I don't know, because I I do think we are at an inflection point where there's going to be a defensive adjustment. I just don't know what that looks like yet. And I, you know, you can have theories, but what that does in terms of kind of the strategies and skills that are valued, it's, it's, we're dealing almost with complete uncertainty because it's, it's going to be an innovation that we don't know what it is yet. So you think that, do you think that someone's going to come up with like a new Thibodeau type defense that, you know, takes away, that somehow takes away these high value shots like corner threes and funnels everything into lower efficiency shots somehow is some holy grail defense? Um, I, I don't know if it's going to be necessarily a holy grail. I think as we progress, you know, progress with more information, these kind of edges that are available get smaller and smaller, mm-hmm. uh, but it's going to be something that's going to, you know, tip the balance back. It's, it's, that's always the, the way it goes, right? Is the offense figures something out, the defense adjusts, and then the offense figures the next thing out. Um, the change is going to be smaller, but there's going to be, there's going to be something that someone figures out. And I, I have to think that that's soon. Alternatively, the other, the other big kind of, uh, moving factor here is is there might be rule changes that you know alter you know essentially alter the geometry of the court. Um, if, for example, uh, the the NBA starts imposing uh, encouraging refs to call moving screens more, it becomes far more difficult to create advantage situations. And then uh, you know players who can stand and shoot 
but not create for themselves at all, they become less valuable. What do you sort of instantaneously? Yeah, Seth, I was actually going to ask about the rule changes and if you thought they were going to move the three-point line back at some point. And I guess the real question is, what does the NBA want? I mean, you have this question with Major League Baseball. Like, are they juicing the balls? Are they not juicing the balls? Like, obviously, they think home runs sell, but there's a lot of people that don't like that, a lot of the purists. But what um, do you, does the NBA sort of think that the, the game as it is now with all the three-pointers is a, quote, better game than it was, say, in the late 90s? Um, when that really wasn't a big part of offenses um, and you had much lower, lower scoring. I mean, it's scoring sells, but, but I guess what are they, what, what, what do you think they should be sort of targeting to as, as the sort of best product? Um, I almost feel like framing it in the, the context of three pointers versus not is, is too reductive. Um, the, the, the variety is determined by more than shot location. And if every team is running the same sets to get the same shots, then everything looks the same. Uh, I don't feel we totally have that, even though that's the perception. But even the perception of that is a problem. So just, you know, creating some diversity and um, almost maybe more dynamics over the course of the game. Um, There's so many offenses are based on so much movement now. It's almost, the, the action is almost too frenetic for, uh, an untrained eye to really follow what's going on. And like, the, I think from a viewership standpoint, that's cool in doses, but if there are more ebbs and flows in the game, if that is, if that, if that makes sense. Um, totally. uh, and I don't, I don't know how you impose that, but that's, I think that's from an aesthetic standpoint, I think that's what's. Yeah, I mean, like you almost think that the, what they should be working on is why, is is just game flow and like you know things like and like the the elam stuff the thing reason the elam stuff was so great in the all-star game is you didn't have fouling at the end of the game right like is that a better is that there weren't all these stops at the end of the game is that a better format can we go to the european model where you know the ball doesn't have to when it's out of bounds doesn't touch the ref right they just grab it and they just go it's like some of these things i think could help even more than, you know, making a wider lane or making more, like, all of this stuff that they're, they've talked about. Um, let's wait, 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 why don't, Jeff, hold on. Why don't they make a bigger court? I mean, to me, I, like, am I the only one that's tradition, thought of this? You have players that probably. are so much bigger. Well, no, they've moved the three-point line. They've made so many rule changes over the years. Why not make the court bigger so that you can have, you know, longer three-pointers on, on the wings um, and – just it feels like given how much bigger everybody is now than before like it, i don't know it would be a more exciting game that's just but my what's opinion. funny is everyone's bigger than they are before but yet the, those bigger players aren't playing quite as much you know like there's not the seven they, foot they tall move. players are just much much less a part of it so it's right. not the, the size size does not matter if it's no, no i'm talking about athletic people that can about. move though right it's 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 the it's the motion not the size that is it's the thing now yeah exactly (laughs) i like that we've gone to that um so so we want i want to move to the bubble and i assume that you know even though you're not working for a team anymore you've been obviously watching um closely what's happening have you noticed any trends in the bubble specifically around things like home court, no fans. There's the talk of like scoring efficiency being up a little bit because of um, no fans. 
Um, there's also just tiny sample size, so it's really hard to, to know for sure what any of this means. From your you know, anecdotal standpoint and maybe even anal any analysis you've done, you know, is there any sort of advice that you could give to gamblers as they think about going forward, you know, looking at what, at sort of home, home court or looking at any kind of trends that might favor certain teams over the other? Like what are some of your top observations from the bubble so far? Uh, the biggest one, certainly through the seeding games, and, and it's a little early in the playoffs to tell, was how the game has been officiated. Uh, free throw rates are, 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 have just been much higher, um, especially the first week of, of seeding games, but it still was, was slightly elevated in, in, the, in the second week of seeding games. And there's been a lot of theories as to why. Um, the one I kind of continue to, to believe most is the fact that the refs are hearing more contact. So a lot of the sort of incidental stuff that you sort of play through in an environment with that sort of, with that kind of the general sort of ambient buzz that, that goes on in an arena with, you know, 15,000 people. Um, so there's, there's a, a, more fouls are being called more shooting fouls, more off ball fouls, the uh, increase in the number of, of, of bonus fouls. Uh, Mike Prada uh, had an article yesterday at 538 noting how much more time teams are spending in the penalty um, in the bubble. And I think that's the, that's the main driver, it seems, of kind of the increase in at least offensive rating. Uh, pace has been a little bit higher in the bubble, although now that the playoffs have started, that's actually uh, kind of dropped from a, you know, hundred possessions a game to about 98 um, in just again through 16 playoff games. So, not enough to really say. So that's that's the thing I would be most interested in in looking at. I, I think the thing that's concerning about the referee thing is this is one of those things again that a trend that um, like what you said makes complete sense, right? There is increased. Uh, they just are more aware of it because they can hear it, and that makes total sense, right? Like when it's frenetic and everything's going on and there's noise, they don't now. The problem is that that's the type of thing that Adam or whomever will look at and be like, hey, guys, this is a little bit, you know, the foul calling is a little bit, we need to, like, relax this, and that could definitely, you could definitely see that changing. So I worry that would not necessarily be predictive yeah. going forward in the bubble. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would be aware of is I think that the, especially in a playoff setting, the sort of almost rubber band effect you might see about, you know, a team that loses one game, you know, maybe does better. We call than it the game. zigzag theory. Yeah. The, the the, the, world. yeah. Um, without home court, um, like while home teams have done a little bit better in the bubble, I think that's largely noise. Um, and uh, without that, I'm just wondering about those dynamics, you know, a team goes Don't up, you think zigzag might even be even, even more? prevalent it without a home court meaning like if if zigzag is like very much about motivation and there's no sort of like if you think about all the different factors you can control if you all of a sudden can control home court meaning like there is none then the zigzag motivation theory could be even more pronounced i mean it's definitely something that that you could you could go either way i'm right. i'm thinking more in terms of of almost from a series standpoint um you know, you, you, in a normal series, the home team, the higher seeded team, wins comfortably the first two games. Um, uh, that, well, game, that third game, that first half, yeah. 
they're going to be the, the home team now. The down, team down 2-0 is always – they've actually – what's interesting, I don't know how much you follow this, but, like, it's gotten to a point where the first half line will be out of line for what the second – for what the full game will be because people will fully expect that team to be overperforming for that first half and then come back to reality in that second half. So just – as someone who who does not bet on sports, I'm, is there uh, is there actually value in no? They won the first two games; they're going to still do well in the second half. Or is it is there some empirical justification for that uh, ex- expectation? Uh, the, the, well, so the 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 overreaction or the reaction, depending on how you might say it, is that that team down will will outplay what their full game rating will be for the first half. Okay, and the 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 full game is typically still roughly close to what it should be, but the first half is usually a, a bit out of line. That, that's at least what we've seen in the last couple of years. And it may, it may in many ways be an overreaction, but it's, it's, it's what's, it's what the market has been doing. Sure. Um, but so I, I wonder if that's, if that if we can count on that without kind of the, the sort of the rabid home crowd thing going on. I mean, well, I, I we should I limit, let's look at the lines because we have a couple two o two two o teams going today, right? I mean, yeah. and also you know that I mean, home field is stronger in the first half and first quarter of games just across all sports. So I think that definitely is implicated. Yeah, that's some. I don't again, like you don't you may not follow some of this stuff because it's it's not as useful for real life as it is for gambling. But it's we like, found yeah. that that home field or home court diminishes through the course of a game, especially if the game's close. Um, and it, it, it almost goes to like zero, right, Rufus, at the end of these games to some degree? Um, zero at the end. I mean, I, I, I've heard there have been studies on like foul calls at the end or something like that, right? I mean, because if you think about it, the referee bias at the end, it's probably going to be larger. Um, but overall, I, I mean, just on a global sense, it's stronger early in games across all sports. Yeah, so there is a there is a teeny bit of bias right now. The Raptors are eleven point favorites in the game today, and in the first half, well, no, there's no in the first half there are five and a half, which is definitely a little bit of a bias because you you would expect it's not usually in the first half for a big favorite going to be fifty percent, right? Wouldn't it's it be like be six and a half? It would be like seven yeah. or something. And then and then the the Celtics game, they're minus two in the first half. And then they are um, they are five and a half in the game, so you are you are seeing them price this in. So uh, in many ways, it'll it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, there's it's a small sample size, obviously, but it it will be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, I'm like I'm I'm so, I am I am I am a little skeptical just from a from a you know a a casual perspective. I'm I'm a little skeptical of of that of that Philly line in particular. Just, yeah, I mean, I think they're going to lie down, right? I mean, they're just they 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 they've got to be ready to quit on Brown. They they they've gotten pretty fairly dominated, at least in game two, right? You would expect them to have come in game two, come out hard, and they did in, in the first quarter, but they basically couldn't miss in the first quarter, yeah. right? So that 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 always helps when you play in the NBA if yeah. you if you make right. all your shots. Yeah. Um, did you have any? Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts. Um, we have about five minutes left with you. So I'd love to get your thoughts a little bit on just how you think this all plays out. Obviously, I assume you still root for the Bucks. Um, I'd like to see my friends do well. Yeah. 
Um, there, I, you know, there's there's other teams that that uh, that I'm I, I would like to see do well as well, but I don't. I, I certainly don't have. I'm not rooting against them. I'll put it that way. Who do you think is the biggest threat to the Bucks in the East? Right now, Miami. Wow. Just, just from a just from a strengths and weaknesses kind of like overlap situation. Um, like I think Toronto is the second best team in the East. I would you think that if Hayward was healthy, or you you think that yes, maybe? yes, I would I would think that if Hayward was healthy. Um, I worry because they are so dependent on transition offense, and I just don't know if they can score um, enough in, in the half court against against Milwaukee. Um, whereas Miami, because of their shooters and you know looking specifically at the number of guys who will take and make. Uh, you know, difficult threes, uh, you know, Duncan Robinson, Tyler Harrow, Cora Dragic, so on and so forth. Um, I feel like that's the, the, that's the kind of things that might pull, pull Milwaukee out of their base defense. And then you've taken what has been a historically great defense and turning them into something else and almost blunted one of the, the main advantages the team has. That, so that's like, a real, that, wait, hold on. That's a really interesting point you make because I always kind of just assume – in general in sports that the whole matchup thing is overvalued and it's more like, you know, the, the it's who's the better team. Right. Um, but it sounds like you're saying that matchups at this sort of level is actually quite important and just certain teams are bad fits for other teams. Um, I think that, it, I mean, if you think about it, I always, you know, go back to, you know, high school biology and, and the microscope, there's the, the big dial and the little dial and the talent is the big dial. And then, and then the matchups are so, so I think it, it, you know, um, it, it, the talent matters more, but it, the matchup, those micro things can matter a lot, especially in a, uh, you know, where, where each game is not really an independent trial because there's the, because the game to game stuff Ooh. matters. So, I mean, you can find a weakness and exploit it because, I mean, you're playing a whole series of games rather yeah. than just during yeah. the regular season, it's a one-off and yeah. you're, okay. Yeah, that, no, that's, regular, I mean, that's reg- regular season, regular season play is GTO and, and, and uh, you playoff is, is uh, it can be much more exploitive and, the, and the switch in mindset. That's a, the, that's NBA, the NBA playoffs is what I consider it to be the most fascinating study of adjustment and um, because you know, baseball, you have a seven game series where you have a different pitcher every time and hockey is, is the closest thing. Right. But in hockey, the goalie plays such a big part of it that like you don't have in, in basketball, you have these seven events that, and, and you just see the adjustments that happen during that course. And like, you see sometimes like you really see like a series end and like the, the second game where, the, you know, one team just finds something and you're like, there's nothing that they're going to be able to do to stop that. And you just, you just see it. And I, I, from my standpoint, I, that's the way I feel like the Celtic Sixers game is right now where this, this, this Sixers just have, it's just Embiid and Brad's basically said, you beat us Embiid, but you're just going to get tired by the end of the, by the end of the quarter and our threes versus your twos are going to win eventually. So. So wait, yeah. it sounds like coaching matters a lot more in the playoffs and probably more in basketball or in the NBA than other sports just because of, because of the structure of the playoffs. Is that, would you agree with that? I don't want to, I don't want to go quite that far. Part of it is because 
we have so much more information about like thinking specifically about hockey and, and, and probably soccer to that, to that matter too. We just, we can, we have such better kind of event level data that we can just analyze it better. So we can, we can probably pull those things out more easily in basketball right, right now. I don't want to get ahead of us, ahead of ourselves and say it, it matters more. It's just, we can, we can observe it. We can observe it mattering much more easily. Right, right, but but the fact that you're playing the same team up to yeah. seven games in a row, and yeah, yeah, I think I think coaching matters a lot. Okay, last thing, two minutes on the West. Uh, what do you who you know? Is it is it clearly the Lakers? Is it Lakers Clippers? Does our friend Daryl have a chance to play positive the positive variance game and and uh, find himself in this? Where where do you sit on yes. on this? Yes, I think the, the 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 Rockets sort of defined the puncher's chance just in terms of, of them. You know, we talked about, you know, GTO versus exploitive play. Well, the, the Rockets are so outside of anything anyone's ever done in terms of, of their, their style of play, in terms of the size of their players, in terms of the amount they switch on defense, in terms of the amount that they rely on isolation offense. Um, so all of these principles that you've worked on to play 28 different teams are just less applicable. So what does that look like? That's, I, I still think, broadly speaking, the LA teams have more talent, but the, 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 the context of the game is so different against the Rockets because of those things that just that introduces a lot of uncertainty. And for the team that knows it's less talented, like uncertainty is, you know, you can describe that as variance. That's, that's your friend. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one to end on. Um, Seth, thanks for joining us. Um, maybe we'll have you on again uh, towards the end of the playoffs. Cause it's, it's pretty cool to actually talk to someone who knows something about that NBA. Um, meaning Rufus knows nothing Seriously. about it. Seriously. <laughs> 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 <laughs>